Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. And it's the guys. It's just the three of us today. And uh, we're going to get into some fun conversation. But before we do, uh, let's just go around the horn and introduce ourselves because you may be one of those people that has never tuned into this podcast before. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a few books. One of those books uh, is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And that apparently is the one that everybody likes, or at least reviews. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's enough about me. Uh, how about you, Glenn? Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, retired history professor, freelance speaker, uh, writer, bunch of other odds and ends. Okay, I guess that was also an ad. You can contact Glenn if you want him to speak. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. All right, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today. It's your day. Okay, I'm Tom Price. Um, feel free to reach out to me as well, <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, I teach theology, uh, ethics, philosophy, a bunch of other things. I uh, talk on a bunch of them, write about a bunch of them, and uh, I'm going to be talking about some of that today. Um, so anyway, we are in the right. season of Advent, um, and yeah, we, of uh, course, are... Uh, thinking about those things, and a lot of the celebration is showing up all around us. Um, there's lights and lightings and Christmas trees and ornaments and all kinds of stuff at stores, and just about from every direction, even up here in New England, you are reminded that it is the season of Advent and Christmas is coming. And so I figured... So in even in New light, England... Yeah. Even in New England, which which may really play into kind of my... Right. my well, here, I, I want to just throw out a thought. You can tell this, this sort of the, the political and sort of social outlook of a person depending on the color of their Christmas lights. So uh, <laughs> if it's all white and you just got like white uh, candles in the windows and, and, and so forth, and you're in a, you know, in a more upscale community in New England, you can, you, you know, you're dealing with probably, you know, liberals, Democrats, stuff like that. But if you got lots of green and, and, and red lights and inflatable, <laughs> uh, you know, Frosty the Snowman and, you know, Rudolph's and Santa Claus's out front, you're talking about regular people that probably actually enjoy Christmas. <laughs> I have I have that all over my neighborhood, so that's that's a good uh, <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> um, so so my topic today is some themes that uh, are the kind of the consequence of the incarnation, um, and uh, Christmas, of course, being one of those, and some of the some of the uh, variety of things that, as we think about the advent, uh, the event of Christmas as Scripture gives it to us, that uh, that we still have questions about, or we may find that things have shown up in the world as a consequence of Christ becoming incarnate that we don't always know what to do with. Some of that is even amongst Christians with Christmas. Um, so we will be hitting on a variety, variety of themes. Um, but the first theme I wanted to talk about that comes out of that is when you're reading the Gospels, you know, of Luke, for example, and you have the announcement um, from the angelic hosts, uh, one of the things that you hear in that great unveiling is peace on earth and goodwill towards men. 
right? This is one of the things that is announced with, with Christmas. And I was reflecting on this, that the, one of the things that the Christmas tradition, as it's been shaped by the Christmas story and, and Christ and the incarnation, is that you do have a lot of hymnody and songs and celebrations that do radiate something of joy, and a kind of happiness and a waiting and an excitement and an anticipation, all of these things that are very human and very biblical. Um, but when you hear this, that, you know, in this event, um, peace on earth is coming with this child to be born and goodwill towards men, what you get at the very moment, even in the stories of the gospel, is anything that appears to be very peaceful, <laughs> and there's not a whole lot of goodwill, even though we try to muster something of that up during this season so we, we all don't look like the Scrooge, right? So what did come into the world, and what do we mean by peace and goodwill has entered the world, has impacted it? Impacted it. Um, we see glimpses of it, even in the time of celebrating Christmas, but we don't see the full flood of it. Right. Um, so what can it mean? And I think the, f the first thing I throw out there is that this notion of Christ coming the first with the first advent um, is also something of a partial apocalyptic. Um, it's that peace has entered into a world that knows nothing of it and it is entered in its first fruit. And so what we see here is that this kind of peace is not pacifism or utopianism, <laughs> um, but it is something of battle. It is a battle against the disharmony and the discord, and so there is something about it that is disruptive. As a matter of fact, Jesus coming on the scene was already impacting the political world for which Herod ends up slaughtering a bunch of children at this, the possibility that he could have a challenge to his, his worldly power, right? So peace is coming, but this peace doesn't mean absence of brutality, um, absence of battle. As a matter of fact, it might be a call to battle. Yeah, w w you know, thinking about the slaughter of the innocents, uh, that's uh, uh, noted and observed during the Advent season. I know in the Eastern Church, is it also in the Roman Catholic, maybe in the Anglican traditions? Yeah, well? on, um, I think it's December 27th. Mm. Yeah. Somewhere around there, somewhere during the 12 days of Christmas, you, you right. see that. Yeah, that's certainly not something we associate with Frosty the Snowman. You know, that's a pretty <laughs> somber thing to recall, and, you know, and to put into the church calendar so that every year, you know, we're reminded that this, this happened. Getting to the idea of, of peace, uh, though, uh, pacification, which means to bring the peace, uh, has a militant tone because uh, it's about subjecting uh, the rebel or the, the troublemaker, uh, uh, you know, to the peace, reconciling him to the peace by disarming him. <laughs> In other words, you know, saying you're, you're gonna you're gonna get peaceful here right now, here, guy, uh, whether you like it or not, and and if you're not peaceful, we're gonna get violent with you. <laughs> you know, pacification. <laughs> that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because the 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 modern trend um, that is very steeped in a kind of individual notion of 
pacifism as a kind of utopian ideal that I can embrace personally, I mean, that's the way it's usually presented, is foreign to this, this kind of understanding. Um, first of all, it's a, it's a very modern way of thinking about things, but it's also so detached from the conditions of the fallen world that has been broken into by, you know, by the eternal, um, that, that the modern world doesn't even have categories for really dealing with that, that kind of reality. And then you couple this with, um, this notion, well, I'll, I'll give you another example. I remember when I was a new Christian going to one of these little Christian bookstores that were fashionable once upon a time. And, uh, one of the guys who ran it, he was a good, you know, King James only, Puritan Baptist, you know, looking endlessly for any little way the church had things wrong. And uh, one of the things I remember him <laughs> criticizing was he was criticizing the song uh, Silent Night, Stille Nacht, because, you know, the night was anything but silent there in this busy town. And I think he was really missing the point of the song, which is pretty characteristic of folks like that, um, in that it's talking about the way that in the midst of all of this discord and disharmony, there is this child that is the Prince of Peace, and there is a calm that has been brought to the people of God in this one, that whatever the external circumstances of suffering, challenge, fighting, trial, temptation— they are not in the same condition they were without hope prior to the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, what, what, what's that other song, that famous song, um, The Bells on Christmas Day? Did you, did you, the Bells on Christmas Day, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, they sound uh, and it's, uh, boy, I shouldn't have brought it up because I don't have the lyrics off the top of my head, but... Uh, somebody out there in podcast land probably knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was written, if I remember right, during the Civil War. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and yeah. the um, I'm blanking out on the poet's name, but he was one of he was one of the famous uh, poets of the day, and you know he he was talking about the fact that you know this idea of peace on earth just. Mm -hmm. You know, in his day made no sense at all. And yet he looked beyond it to the hope that that comes with Christ. Right. Yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's worth noting, by so the way, you, that the word peace doesn't really do doesn't really do justice to the biblical concept of of peace or shalom, um, that it's more than just we're going to get along. It's more than just pacification. Um, the, the word shalom points to the sense that, you know, everything that is needed for human flourishing is present. Um, it, it's a very holistic type word. And although we've got the New Testament written in Greek, I think we can be pretty sure it's echoing the Hebrew shalom and its use of the Greek word irene there. Yeah, I think the the irony. I mean, the, the the little bit of different emphasis tends to be on a kind of uh, a realizable unity within the brokenness of things. But I think Shalom is pointing directly to that as well. I, I think they they are pretty parallel in the way they're used in Scripture. Um, but what you get with Jesus, of course, is the is the re, the inbreaking right um, 
of peace and eternity into time and a time that has been broken in some sense. And so you do get, in many ways, um, the first fruits of that with the Spirit's descent onto the people of God, the church, um, and in their their life together. And again, as if any one knows church history and church life, that too has been anything <laughs> um, in terms of worldly notions of getting along and uh, peaceableness. Uh, nevertheless, it hasn't negated what Christ has brought and what the Spirit is able to supply. Um, what it does mean is that the conditions we are in are truly broken, and they are they are the first fruits of being restored to Christ. And so there is going to be a continuous battle until all things are brought into subjection to Christ, and he fills all things. And so this, too, is going to have something of us having the peace of God and the assurance that comes with his promise and, and his person and presence, but also the assurance that when you're in this world, you are going to have tribulation. Um, if you are with Christ, you are going to be hated by all men outside of Christ. And so it, this isn't just you're going to be disliked. You're going to be hated, <laughs> right? So there is anything but the, the bringing of the final shalom at this point, even though we are partakers of it. And that's why I meant the kind of apocalyptic rather than the utopian, um, because it, it, there is a kind of uh, inbreaking and battle. And, you know, talk about, you know, war of the cosmos. This is directly a part of it. The family, of course, is right at part of the center of it. Um, so these things are there, um, and you notice later, for example, in John 14, 27, you've got peace, but not of this world, right? Um, I give you peace, but it isn't the kind the world has on offer. Um, and so those are things to kind of keep in mind when we're talking about peace on earth. But what about the other side, goodwill towards men? Um, here's another thing that oftentimes is found lacking in wanting, um, and yet there is something of the first fruits of our wills being turned away from merely being curved in on themselves, now outwards towards a people together oriented to Christ and serving. And so there is the first fruits of that, even if we don't get the full realization at this point. So related to that, Tom, um, when we think about goodwill toward men, uh, is your reading that the goodwill is men expressing goodwill toward other men or God uh, promising goodwill, his goodwill toward men or both? Uh, you know, I, 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 and I think it's, uh, I've got some thoughts on this, but one of the things that was a kind of a, a thing that I had to reconcile myself to um, years ago is that no matter how much I, I work to be likable, there are people <laughs> who just don't like me. <laughs> they don't have goodwill. <laughs> and, and, and some of those people yeah. spend a lot of their time waiting for me to mess up uh, or do something that they can <laughs> sort of seize upon to harm me. Uh, I've experienced it at different points in my life. Uh, 
but now I'm at a stage now, you know, the old, you know, I've, I think I've used this before so many times it's, it's probably gotten on people's nerves, but you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. You know, <laughs> I'm at a stage where I'm kind of paranoid, <laughs> but I've got some evidence uh, or some basis for my paranoia. I, I really do yeah, know yeah. that there are people who are out to get me. Uh, yeah. I, I'd like a little more goodwill in the world. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, yeah. I might be at peace with them in one sense, in the sense that they're not attacking yeah. me at the moment. But <laughs> give them a chance, and they will. Well, that well, that's that's right. I, I mean, I think I mean you could you could see. Uh, I mean, I, I watch, for example, what Christians do to each other on you know X, which used to be Twitter. And for any little thing you say, you get nothing but endless critique. I mean, they spend all their time nitpicking to where the the whole mission of the church other than nitpicking each other becomes you know eclipsed and and so yeah where is the goodwill even for each other and and so this there is definitely something apocalyptic i think about it um when it's announced Uh, of course it's embodied in in christ and i think you're right the 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 turning of god's favor to us through christ's work um, and that becomes a first fruit for the development of a people within the world embodied by the Spirit, that there is still a unity that all of their bad will cannot break down, and that the gates of hell still will not prevail against this people, no matter how on the surface broken and lacking of goodwill there is. In other words, something has entered into the bloodstream of history now because of Christ through the Spirit that even if on the surface we are not seeing its manifestation, it is a promise and it is there. And it shows up in the strangest places like songs written to celebrate Christmas, a spirit that starts to develop of people when they you start to reflect on what is this Christ all about, right? And again, it's just little glimpses of something that think of the world and think of Christmas, there wouldn't be one, of course, but think of it apart from Christ ever coming. You wouldn't have any sense of even what this kind of goodwill would even look like in the smallest degree. And so my point is, is something entered here that is irreversible, and it's tied to promise, but you're exactly right. I think it's apocalyptic, and it even goes against the grain of our natures as they rebel against their full transformation, you know, during the process of sanctification. And yes, sadly, other brothers um, could even be guilty of wanting to bring bring other brothers down um, just because of, of, of a kind of uh, resistance to that, that goodwill. Well, that and also... Um you know, it gives uh, someone an advantage uh, if I can somehow uh, make someone else look bad, then perhaps by contrast, I look good or maybe because I expose the the thing that I'm bringing to light. Uh, I am, you know, uh, seen as a hero of, 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 of a <laughs> sort. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that comes in, comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually, we've got a bit of a translation issue here, too. Um, exactly how that phrase, uh, two men of goodwill, should be translated is, um, well, that's the King James. But uh, <laughs> yeah. the more recent translations tend to say, peace on earth, 
to those, to men, um, on whom God's favor rests or something like that, uh, yeah. or, or to men who have God's goodwill. I mean, the, the focus tends to be less about goodwill to men um, as something that is coming separate from the peace, but rather that the peace is coming to men who have God's favor, who, who, toward whom God has goodwill. Um, So the and I think that's what you were getting at a moment ago, Chris, the translation is is a little bit tricky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what this inspired uh, for me is, you know, even before, you know, I I grew up in a in a in a home that was, you know, at the at the very beginning, just very nominally Christian and then uh, got into stuff that is explicitly non-Christian. But we still observe Christmas. Uh, it was like mm-hmm. a thing that you had to do, uh, not just because it was like the thing that everybody did, but because there was something about it that you enjoyed. Yeah. And, and uh, there was something to the you know, kind of the spirit of it that um, just, you know, and it wasn't greed. You know, it wasn't just um, I, this is my opportunity to get all the toys I want, uh, although that yeah. certainly was in play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember one year I, I, I got out the, uh, the, I think it was the Sears catalog, which back in those days was like you know, the size of an encyclopedia. Oh. And going through the, the yeah. toy section and circling everything I wanted, I think, and this yeah. is like 1970 <laughs> or so, I came up to like about $3,000 and I, I gave my parents <laughs> the list. But here's, do you remember Stevie Wonder's song, I Wish? Uh, there's a line in that song where he's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very nostalgic. He's talking about the days, you know, when he was a kid and, and how great they were. And he wishes that he could go back. But it starts off uh, looking back on when I was a little nappy-headed boy, which is something that a black person would say back in the 70s and the 60s and stuff. That was a particular thing. Uh, then my only worry was for Christmas, what would be my toy? And then he goes on to say, even though we sometimes would not get a thing, we were happy with the joy that the day would bring. So this is Stevie Wonder singing a popular song. You know, this is this is something that was, uh, you know, in the top 10 on the radio. You know, what, this is not like yeah. uh, something that would be given a recognition at the Dove Awards for being a Christian song. Yeah. This is just a song back yeah. in the day, you know. But yeah. even he could see... You know, there, there was, you know, uh, something more to it as a little kid than just getting yeah. what you want for Christmas. And I think that's something that critics of Christmas who, yes, uh, you know, uh, are dismissive of the crass materialism that's often associated yeah. with. I, I get that. But, yeah. uh, you know, there, there, there has always been more to it than that. Even people who aren't Christians know there's more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you see that, I mean, classic stories, you know, Dickens stories and, and different ones that kind of start to measure when, when people get so consumed by the idol of money because of some hurt in the past, right, that turns it into a god and they become dehumanizing. Um, these stories, you know, they reverberate, you know, they echo something that the real event 
has uh, sent sort of waves out into the world, and, and these things have been be- become a part of our tradition um, because of the impact of Christianity. And so I think one of the things that one sees, especially with Christmas and what you're talking about, is the way in which since Christ comes into the world and leaves consequences, um, those consequences aren't just our individual piety or just our, you know, our regular everyday kind of piety. But there are focal points um, that center on key events like his birth and its significance and meaning that spill over and transform um, culture, society, and that when they do that, there is something in our festivals and our celebrations that are impacted by the meaning and significance of Christ and the, as the Prince of Peace and the coming joy um, that scratch at our longings as creatures, and they do allow us to get a drop or a taste of something that Christianity brings, even if they don't run with it. They take it in, you know, again, fallen directions. Um, and it's similar, you could think of the way that Christianity impacted healthcare, right? <laughs> the care of the sick and the development of hospitals, right? There are people who may not believe in God or the gospel, but they're going to run to take, get taken care of to one um, because of the, the goods that have come from it. And I think a lot of times we only look at the negatives like, oh, sometimes, you know, the, the holiday can eclipse the reason for the season. Um, but we don't realize that people may be grabbing a hold of the only thing they at this moment are able to get that are actually reverberations of, of what Christmas and Christ is all about. Um, and they, they can be ways of us pointing to the rich fullness that Christ is and to what you can have in him that isn't merely a holiday, but is actually something that you can partake of eternally. Yeah, this re- reminds me of the, the criticisms that people have concerning church buildings. So, uh, it, yes, it is possible for a church to go off the rails, uh, even become a synagogue of Satan. But the building itself, unless you tear down that steeple and take out the, the, the windows uh, and get rid of the cross, is saying something uh, that actually contradicts maybe the thing that's being said in the pulpit. So you, you go into a place like Harvard Square, right? And you can't see uh, a church that's theologically sound anywhere uh, in sight. But the buildings are theologically sound, and they're pointing up, you know, with their steeples. Yeah. And there are there there are people who in our in our contemporary situation uh, where people are enamored with, and for good reasons, the fact that you know the early church didn't have any buildings and they were faithful and and and, and so forth. Well, the reason they didn't have any buildings, of course, is because uh, you know uh, they were being persecuted. But the moment that they could start building them they did <laughs> but even while they were being persecuted yeah yeah they, even, they, they thought, the, even the prior to constantine there were church buildings and yeah the the thing about though you get this sort of uh i guess uh nostalgia for the spiritual church uh at the expense of the visible church including its architecture and you know everybody wants to worship in something anything that doesn't look like a church a warehouse, a mall, 
you know, a storefront, whatever. Uh, they want to, they want to be somewhere else besides a church building. And what ends up occurring is if, you know, the Christian faith in this, in a particular area uh, disappears, there's, they've left no physical evidence that it was ever there. Is that really what we're up to? Yeah. You know, when, when you take a look at the history of uh, anti-Christmas celebrations, um, where you really have to look for, at least uh, as, as near as I can tell, the origin of that, a lot of it came from the Puritans. And you have to understand what the Puritans were reacting to. Um, Christmas in that period was a pretty decadent kind of thing. Um, the, the sorts of celebrations and things like that. Yeah, there, there were things that were connected to the church, but a lot of it was really pretty, well, chaotic, rambunctious, uh, well, decadent. And so they reacted against the decadence of the celebration by banning the celebrations, which I think was really the wrong answer. Um, it's interesting when you, when you go to probably my least favorite a Christmas song that shows up in a lot of hymnals. It came upon a midnight clear. It was written by a Unitarian. And if you look at it, there's absolutely no reference to Christ. There's no reference to incarnation, nothing like that in it. And yet that song was written because at the time, all of the Christmas songs out there were were completely secular. It was an attempt to bring some sort of religious meaning back back to Christmas. And it was done by a Unitarian. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 So, well, you know, what, yeah. what, what I find interesting here is you can, you can go back to St. Augustine, Jerome, people like that. They've got extens- extensive sets of Christmas sermons. You know, this yeah. was something that was celebrated at a point where people are still, you know, would describe these guys as church fathers, really important thinkers and all that. Yet they, yet they are advocating the celebration of Christmas, albeit in different terms than what we've got now. Yeah. So, well, I'll probably I talk about uh, that... Augustine's sermons mm-hmm. at a later podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that you will see that oftentimes from a, a crass puritanical viewpoint um, is basically a bad relationship to everything the church did prior to them coming on the scene. And and I understand because of abuses, but it's also a removal of themselves from the you know from the situations that gave rise to those things. I'll give you an example. Um, Chris just talked about the way in which we tend to favor certain ways of communicating the gospel in in our particular context, right? In a secular world, you almost want to appear, you know, these churches accommodate to a secular form of worship, if you will, that it's no different than going to a shopping mall or something along those lines. Um, Christianity early on didn't settle for that. I mean, if you start just with the way the church had to articulate the biblical teaching in a new context, the Gentile world, and when those different heresies arise, they realized that they were going to have to utilize pagan language to express biblical truth, but they were going to have to gut that language and re-employ it. In other words, they're going to take a creaturely thing, and they're going to wean it off of all those things that are, are not true and refashion it so that it can express truth. 
And they didn't just do that with technical terms. The church did it with everything because all things now are to be refashioned in light of Christ the center. And so no longer are pagan things pagan. They're only pagan insofar as they haven't been restructured and reoriented to Christ. So a festival that once used to celebrate something pagan um, is now going to have to be be everything about it that has, you know, eclipses the truth of Christ is going to have to wean off. Those aspects that have to do with just creatureliness can hang on, but those parts that distort or pervert truth in the fullness of Christ, they're going to have to go. The church was imperfect in doing it, as we are, but it's the way in which we utilize our work in the world as Christians to bring all things into subjection to Christ. He marks all of time now for the church. So the calendar has to be Christianized for for Christians. And so this is what you see the church doing, um, usually out of necessity, um, but you see it doing it nonetheless. And so if Christ is the mark point of all time and the center of it and the point of it all, then everything has to be refashioned and reoriented that way, even those aspects of the cultures we're in. You bring up an important uh, thing that uh, has troubled me for years, and that's um, this this, uh, contemporary practice among scholars to use CE, or Common Era, uh, (laughs) for... Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, um, and the fact that uh, ostensibly Christian scholars do the same thing now uh, without um, self-consciousness um, or even an apology, uh, I think, betrays this very truth that, you know, that Christ and his first advent is at the center of things which is an interesting thing to think about with regard to our Puritan friends. Uh, you know, I've got Puritan sympathies, but at the same time, they were kind of selective. Wouldn't you agree, uh, Glenn? Uh, they didn't, they didn't trouble themselves with the, the, the AD and BC, uh, you know, phenomenon, which we don't actually have a biblical, uh, proof text for. <laughs> in, other, in other words, there's not a place that says, and from now on, you will date your calendar, uh, you know, in reference to Christ. Uh, but well, they did actually, it. <laughs> actually, if you're going to be using biblical uh, standards for dating, the only one we have is starting with the Exodus. Yeah, yeah. So we well, then we then we go the back calendar. to the Jew, to, to to the Jewish calendar, right. <laughs> you know. So so uh, <laughs> by the way, there are uh, there are people within the Christian world who would actually, you know, uh, support that. Uh, I've been dealing with some of the. There's a kind of phenomenon that you have here in the in the Pacific Northwest of a kind of Torah observant Christian uh, kind of uh, trend, uh, and it's a it's a bit. Um, of a new thing for me. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to, uh, you know, sort of even think about it, this sort of thing very much back East, but, but, I, but I'd hear it, you know, you, you got some of it. Yeah. I've run into that too. Um, yeah. I, I, I kind of want to encourage them to, uh, reread Acts 15. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> or Galatians whatever. or Hebrews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this is this is something you get when you jettison tradition, but you know you need it. And I mean tradition in the right sense of the word, uh, a tradition being fashioned by the impact of Christ. Um, and and you see this all ar- around, like when the Puritans basically removed, you know, themselves from certain kinds of public observance and impacting culture that way, um, some kind of quote unquote secular or or as Glenn mentioned, Unitarian vision fills the gap, um, and so and I think it's this it it is this longing for the the pure and the ultimate advent, right? The pure kingdom, um, which is this is something we all long for, um, but we aren't under those conditions yet, and so even though we aim at it, we still are having to take as Christ took broken, fallen human flesh, assumed it, and renewed it. Um, that's where that's where we are. We're dealing with a world that was broken in sin, and the first truth and light of Christ is now being able to be shown in that darkness, and it has and does things. It transforms things its own way, but it doesn't transform them yet into a perfect temple or a, a perfect, you know, uh, culture. It just continuously has an impact as we bring those things into conformity. And so, yeah, everything down to our folklore and our, our stories and everything else are, are kind of retold. We take those things that were part of the broken world and, and they get refashioned, which brings up an interesting point. The difference between, I think, uh, Lewis and Tolkien, we've talked about before with their way of co-creating, um, but Lewis's approach often we mentioned was one that would incorporate, you know, a lot of these varieties into his way of dealing with the way in which reality is to be seen in its fullness. So you'll have Father Christmas, a couple of, you know, Greek gods and, you know, Aslan <laughs> all in the same reality sphere. And of course, uh, Tolkien didn't like it. He wanted to have a kind of a world as far as close to the reality as reality could be, but not bringing in familiarity from this world into the imaginary world. Um, and so and so they both had different approaches, um, but it shows you how they understood language and culture and prior to Christ, with Christ, and transformed by Christ. Um, and that is, I think, a huge contribution and help in helping us navigate the impact of Christ and culture. This is something that I've thought a, a little bit about here and there. Uh, you know, Lewis and Tolkien were coming at, um, you know, the Christian faith, obviously, as a, a Roman Catholic with Tolkien and, and an Anglican with, with Lewis. But you could also say that their metaphysics uh, overlap, but were, dis, were distinct from each other. Uh, uh, yeah. Lewis was more platonic and... Um, Tolkien, a Thomist, or maybe you could say with Lewis and Augustinian, uh, and in terms of his approach, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe that's in part why they uh, went about their work as writing fiction uh, in the ways that they did. Um, there is a kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, when when you're dealing with, you know, the Thomist approach, you know, if you think about the way substance and accident relate to each other and so forth. There's a, there's a, there's a way things can kind of get bound up uh, with each other that um, with a more 
platonic approach it's easier to separate you know so you know i you know i'm i'm, yeah. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head i'm, I'm philosophizing or theolo- theologizing <laughs> off the top of my head which is dangerous practice dangerous practice we don't do this at home <laughs> but as i'm thinking about it, i'm thinking you know the fact that lewis could throw all this stuff together was because he saw uh uh in kind of a lat- he saw lateral connections uh he saw similarities yeah. and he could trace those back to um, form formal uh, things that were real, uh, but were instantiated differently in different situations. If you get my drift. Yeah. What's interesting yeah. here, I think, is uh, a term Tom has used before: the idea of retrieval. That um, what Tolkien and Lewis are both doing, in a sense, is a form of retrieval but a Christianized retrieval. We're going to go back to the past. We're going to go to folklore. We're going to go to mythology, all of these things. But we are going to, as uh, Tom just said, rethink these and reinterpret them in light of Christ. And what I find interesting is that overall, whenever you look at um, you know reform movements in the church, they're always inevitably built around the idea of retrieval. Every reform movement wants to go back to the early church, and every reform movement picks certain things out of the early church and then continues doing what their culture is doing, you know, (laughs) because you can't can't turn back the clock. And this is something that both, I think, Lewis and Tolkien recognize, that there's no way of bringing back the Middle Ages. You can't do it. Um, You have to deal with the fact that we're living in a modern, or in their case, or in our case, a postmodern world. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a kind of retrieval that can take place. You know, we're not we're not romantics. We're not Renaissance thinkers in the cult of antiquity where we're trying to bring something back, you know, completely. But what we are doing is taking the things that we can from the past and seeing how we can apply them, I think, in the modern world. Yeah, I think that's the challenge. I you know, I think of that proverb, Solomon, you know, don't say that the former t- days were better than these. That's not wisdom speaking. That's my paraphrase. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, there were things in the past that were pretty great. Um, mm-hmm. And it'd be great to have them back. So I'm working on a little uh, piece for the American mind right now about the town of Battleground where I live, which is really in some some remarkable ways kind of like a like right out of uh, a Ray Bradbury story. Uh, you know, it's got that kind of Americana uh, and and sort of sort of wholesomeness that uh, you, th- you don't think exists anywhere anymore, but it actually does. And, and we, we kind of have it here. And I'm trying to, under, trying to figure it out. How, well, how is it possible that this is still the case? Well, partly it, it's because they didn't let go of some good things. Um, now, whether or not that'll continue is a good question. Um, and how do you, mm-hmm. how do you retain the best of the past and remain open to the best of the present and what may come down the road down, you know, in the future, you know, that's the, that's the big challenge. You know, it's like the, the ongoing challenge. I think that's what a real traditionalist is. A, tra- a, tra- mm-hmm. a, a, a good traditionalist, uh, isn't so wooden in his thinking that he can't, that's right. uh, make room for anything new. It's it's just that yeah. he's trying to try to say you know try to make a case for uh, things that maybe other people have lost their ability to appreciate. 
Yeah, that's right. And and there's a sort of, you know, we've used the word teleology. Um, there is some, there's a thread that holds it all together. And it is a progressiveness just sees the past merely as setting up for a, a future that almost emerges that increasingly detaches and cuts itself from its roots. Whereas uh, I think, a, 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 you know, a living tradition is not one that turns the tradition, like you said, into some kind of ideal it is it is something too that that moves towards its fulfillment and just as sort of scripture you you know when you when you talk about you know jesus gives you know the very the very eucharist and says you know remember this right why just because of nostalgia of the you know event that you weren't at <laughs> you know um no because there is there is a connection and of course i you know we tend to talk more of a, a sacramental connection but i think reality is that way um i think reality the way the church began to understand it is you know is creation um that owes everything to god and that all of those things that it owes to God when it it acts creaturely is a form of liturgical praise. I mean, this is why Paul will say, when we cease to become thankful and grateful, um, you know, things got dark, right? Um, and so it's one of the things that I think Lewis and Tolkien really brought to, you know, to us was the fact that the the older theology would talk about our metaphysical participation, right, as creatures in being and in knowledge. The Reformation tended to emphasize knowledge. But Tolkien and uh, Lewis and the other Inklings tend to recognize that in our participation in Christ, the Word, the creator of all things, is a creative dimension, which means that our language, our work, our life— when it was is within the boundaries established by God for flourishing, partakes, co-creates, if you were, or recreates out of the sources that God has supplied so that we can have dominion um, the right way, non-idolatrously, um, but also we can offer all of our human things to God as a form of praise. And this is what I mean by there being a kind of sacramental and liturgical dimension to creation that is something that their emphasis on our creative capacity gets a hold of that I don't think sheer romanticism does. They definitely uh, drew off of some of the riches of, of the romantic contribution without being sucked into it because they had a, a richer Christian understanding of things. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that within the British Romantic tradition, you do have a strong Christian element in a number of the key Romantic writers. You got some of them yeah. that are way off the rails, but but there are a number of them that are um, uh, that are pretty firmly anchored in the Christian tradition. And, and I think it would be appropriate uh, to see Lewis and Tolkien as continuations of that. British Christian Romantic tradition, which is a bit different from what you get on the continental Romantics. Yeah, I guess, you know, when it comes to, say, 19th century uh, Christian practice uh, as it relates to, say, Christmas, um, you've got things going on at different levels. Um, you know, if we were to think about, you know, the Christmas Carol, Dickens, and so forth, that uh, 
is the setting of this. The Christmas is the setting of the story. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think, uh, a rich story. Um, but at the same time, it's not a story that uh, is explicitly telling the gospel story, except maybe in the sense that even Ebenezer Scrooge can be redeemed. Uh, and then how does that occur? Um, yeah. But it's it's this this framework. So when it comes to that sort of thing, um, there are uh, some people who are exasperated by that. I guess what I'm getting at is they, they want things to be so uh, impossible to miss uh, that uh, no one possibly could. You know, for example, when you think about, you know, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it's awfully hard to miss you know, what the point. <laughs> and I, I think there yeah, are a lot of people yeah. who want all Christian literature, all Christian storytelling to be like that. I mean, that, that, yeah. uh, it's, it's impossible to miss the point. Um, but we wouldn't have the Christmas Carol, you know, obviously the title, uh, but also yeah. The, the sort of the, the observance provides the backdrop for this, this story that comes to the forefront. Um, it, you, would, you, you can't have that without a Christian uh, holiday, but also a Christian framework within which to tell a story. So the story it does reflect the gospel, but not in the, in the impossible to miss way that I think some people wish it did. Or, or wish stories that are told by Christians would, you know, necessarily have to be like. Yeah, I, I think that's a problem very often with particularly evangelical art, and I use the word art advisedly here. Um, that is somehow, if it isn't a, um, if if it isn't a tract, uh, in some sense, it it isn't really Christian or it's sub-Christian or something like that. You know, every, every Christian movie has to be a an explicit story of redemption and salvation by Jesus. You know, every story has to have that, you know, and so on. And that that is a misunderstanding, I think, in a pretty fundamental way of what the biblical worldview has to say about how we interact with the world, um, as well as a fundamental misunderstanding of art. Yeah. Related, related to this, you know, I, I'm— working my way through Isaiah, my, my, my Bible reading in the morning. And, and I came across, uh, a passage. I can't remember the chapter, maybe it was chapter 22 or 23, something like that, where Isaiah, you know, after these oracles in which he's, uh, you know, prophesying about the destruction of Moab and <laughs> you know, Egypt and Cush and, you know, all this, uh, he, he, uh, makes a statement about a future in which there'll be a highway that runs from uh, Egypt to Assyria, obviously running right through Israel, and that uh, God will, the Lord will be glorified in each nation. That this is um, something that you know is to be anticipated. That that this blessing. Uh, it, uh, of God is going to be enjoyed by everybody in that part of the world, this region. And I, as I think about um, the leavening influence of the gospel in the world, 
I guess I think of it in, in, the, in sort of in the sense that uh, there's something about the influence of the gospel that is expressed through Christmas that everybody kind of gets, even if they don't really have it all right, if you know what I'm getting at. You know, so uh, they might not be able to, to tell you, you know, uh, the four spiritual laws, but, <laughs> you know, Stevie Wonder <laughs> was able to, in that song, uh, instead of, instead of, you know, and, and I wish, uh, saying we had some terrible Christmases where we were so poor, we couldn't afford any gifts. Uh, yeah. instead he, he said, you know, it was a great day, even though we didn't get any yeah. gifts. Um, and, yeah. uh, the, the joy the day would bring. And, yeah. you know, that, yeah. it, and, you know, there are plenty of other things that, that Stevie Wonder sang that, you know, uh, are problems. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> that particular sentiment that he's expressing is, uh, I think, a praiseworthy one. You know, that, that actually raises a question in my mind. When you look at, if you can call them that, secular Christmas songs, you know, what you get, uh, you know, in the... You know, in the past, when you're looking 40s, 50s, even 60s, you get um, you get uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Oh, yeah. uh, you get uh, I'll be home for Christmas. You get yeah. uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you know, those kinds of things. And every one of them is focused on family. It's focused on community. It's focused mm -hmm. on, well, nostalgia, tradition, um, love. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. When you look at, you know, I, I mean, exclude the Santa Claus is coming to town and Rudolph the Red-Nosed sure. Reindeer and things like that. But the ones right. that are looking at the holiday per se tend to be, tend to be of that sort. Mm -hmm. When I look at the recent pop Christmas songs, which is what these things would have been and when they came out, you yeah. don't see that. Yeah, that's you know, interesting. You, you don't see that as much. And I and I wonder what that means. I am not entirely sure, but I, I'm wondering if Christmas is sort of losing its moorings. Well, that, you know, and maybe that's one reason why you still have Bing Crosby singing uh, White Christmas. Mm -hmm. I was just in a store here this uh, last week yeah. uh, getting something and the guy behind the counter you know, remarked because the song was playing over the intercom <laughs> and it was Bing Crosby. He didn't know who Bing Crosby was, but he knew the song. He said, this is my favorite Christmas song. And I, and I, yeah, yeah Bing did it pretty well, <laughs> you know, but, uh, <laughs> that it gets to your point. And, and for those who, uh, you know, uh, are out to abolish Christmas in the name of Christ, um, how are they being, received well they're scrooges in the minds of many people so this is this is the thing who's scrooge in the care you know in in the in the christmas carol maybe uh these anti-christmas puritans <laughs> you know now, that would be the association you know obviously uh scrooge's uh scrooge's humbug is uh intended to be a dismissal of just human sentiments in general uh, not just the holiday, but, but in the minds of many people, that's who, you know, they'd either think of the Grinch or they would think of Scrooge, you know, those two guys and associated anybody who's against Christmas must be either Scrooge or the Grinch. 
I saw this. I thought I saw this was this was cruel. I mean, I, I saw this on Instagram. Uh, there was this guy who dressed up like the Grinch and came into <laughs> a house with a bunch of little kids and started packing up the, the Christmas presents to, t- to steal them. And they were just <laughs> weeping and screaming. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> I think it was probably their uncle or something like that. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably, yeah. That, that sounds like an uncle. That, that, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. So, so I, I guess the question that we need to be thinking about then is how do we do the kind of retrieval that we're talking about or how do we encourage the kind of retrieval um, in the culture? You know, we, we can't go back to the 1940s and sing I'll be home for Christmas. Yeah. You know, we can we'll play it, but we're not going to get that again. Um, mm-hmm. we do get some, some good Christmas carols that are being written now. Um, you know, uh, Eugene, uh, not Eugene, um, Peterson, um, Andrew Peterson. Um, you know, we, we have some things like that, but, but how do we, in a culture that is putting up Christmas decorations before Halloween, and then taking them down the day after rather than on Epiphany. How, yeah. how do we begin getting people to, get, getting people even in our churches to recognize um, what, Christmas, uh, what Christmas means within the deeper Christian tradition? And I'm not talking about recovering the true meaning of Christmas, which everybody talks about, yeah. but nobody really seems to understand. Yeah. How, how, yeah. Do we, how do we get that to happen? You know, to to really sink into the roots of what Christmas has historically meant within the church, what what it is really celebrating. I wonder if it doesn't have to do with just the speed of life. I just remember um, a childhood in which uh, the rhythms of the year uh, were more, uh, I guess, uh, uh, present uh, or more easier to discern or, or to sort of follow and be carried along by. So my life is just so busy. Um, everything seems like a blur. And, you know, I'm on a, you know, a jet plane, you know, twice a month. I'm uh, always feeling like I'm behind. Uh, I've got things that are demanding my attention. Uh, the, it, it, you know, and even though I observe the, the you know, the weekly rhythms of you know worship and work and so forth uh it just seems like uh you got to create uh or you got to have that kind of space to receive Mm -hmm. uh the the time of the year that you're you're that you're entering into Uh, you know that's a mixture of metaphors there but i think i think you get my drift i think maybe what another part of it is we need to recover advent Mm -hmm. yeah you know, because yeah. people think Christmas Day ends the Christmas season. Christmas Day begins the Christmas season. And Advent is intended to be a time of preparation, uh, repentance, all of these kinds of things, looking to the celebration of Christ's first coming and in anticipation of Christ's second coming. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And I've been in churches where I've served as pastor and we've had, a, you know, an Advent uh, uh, sort of liturgical approach to, to Advent. and of But even then, I've, I, I just didn't seem like it seemed even seemed like Advent was rushed. <laughs> if you get my you get my drift, uh, yeah. I'm 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 sympathetic. It's, it, I'm just I'm just wondering uh, if we're not dealing with some kind of larger you know sort of problem in our world. Well, I do. I think I do think the old the old theological you know call to sanctify time. Um, it, you know, and the Wesleyans were actually good at emphasizing that. And then you, you can get, you know, if you, if you get the output of Charles Wesley's songwriting just by sanctifying time, <laughs> you know, and again, they were at a slower time. Um, but, but I do think there are ascetic practices as Christians in the modern world, um, that we are going to have to partake of intentionally in order to, to have a different relationship to time. Um, and I think, I mean, I think Glenn's point is right in, in one sense, of course, the, you know, the, the, the human counterpart to the word is the liturgical, um, worship of the church, right. In, in its patterns and rhythms. Um, and so I think you're right. A conversion of our relationship to time needs to be a part of that liturgy, not merely just trying to rush it or go, you know, go with the flow with the rest of our lives. And I also think, and this is a long game, but when you think of the Holy Spirit, take the transcendentals, right? You have truth, but truth is not separated from word, which means there is a counterpart in the world of our word back to God, right? Our, our worship. Um, but the other part is the spirit, the spirit's endowment of the church. It's spirit in, in uh, Christianity is also called gift, donum, right? And as gift, it is a reminder that the goodness of creation is bound up with gift and it requires us to be converting things that we take as givens, like time and the material world and the way it's structured, as though they're not contingent gifts that can be related to differently. Um, we may not know how to do it, but I think our relationship to reality has to be intentionally driven by our deepest convictions. Otherwise, I don't think we have any way of really getting a hold of it. I mean, we're not, unless we're going to kind of go, you know, live in the desert, we're not going to be able to slow the world down. Um, but we can be related to that world differently. And again, I don't know what it looks like, but I know where to look. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Christmas reminds us of that. Those little hints of these songs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great... Uh, I think, note to end on. We've gotten to the end of the show. Uh, anything uh, you want to say as we conclude, Glenn? Um, one of the things that I'm doing is uh, Malcolm Geith has a series of poems for Advent, a, a poem a day, uh, starting on December 1st. Um, I'm reading those as a way of trying to deepen the experience of leading into Christmas as part of uh, uh, a discipline to try to sanctify the time. Great, great. Anything you want to add here, Tom, as we wrap up? Uh, no, I think I, I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, thinking about Malcolm Geith got me thinking about the fact that we're going to be in the UK at the end of May, and that uh, has firmed up a bit. 
Uh, we still have some financial goals that we need to meet in order to make the trip a, a smashing success. But uh, the basics have been uh, covered by a very generous donation by one of our listeners. So we're very glad for that. So we are going to be in the United Kingdom in Oxford, uh, May 22nd through the 29th. And uh, we're going to be doing uh, a number of things. One of the things we hope to do is a documentary on the Inklings. Uh, we also hope to do a number of podcasts. Uh, we're going to record uh, in different locations. Of course, there are some things we'd love to be able to do at different locations like the Eagle and Child and so forth, but we haven't worked on making any of those things actually uh, uh, you know, come about yet. So these are just dreams at the moment. But uh, we'd love you to pray for us as we pre uh, prepare for this. Uh, pray that we are able to, you know, raise the balance of the funds we need and uh, that everything will come together the way we hope. And there will be a way for you to help out. We're going to probably do another Kickstarter campaign uh, to give uh, people an opportunity to, to be a part of the whole effort. Uh, you know, in an ongoing way, we appreciate all the folks who give to us regularly through Patreon. And... Uh, we don't take those folks for granted at all. And if you'd like to join that uh, select number, the elect, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Patreon supporting uh, folks uh, who support the podcast, uh, there is a link in the show notes and it'll take you there and it'll, it'll be really easy for you to figure out how, how to do that. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.